Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey listeners, Allison here. Can He Do That is still on holiday break this week. But we went into our four-year-long archive to bring back an episode with themes that we really think resonate with the state of the country's politics today. We originally published this episode in October of 2016 during the debate over Brett Kavanaugh's appointment to the Supreme Court. It looks at what happens to the perceived independence of the Supreme Court when confirmation processes devolve into partisan battles. Since two years ago, when this episode originally aired, we now have a conservative-majority Supreme Court with three justices appointed during this presidency. And that court is weighing in on major decisions related to the 2020 election and so much more. So it's interesting to listen back now to our deep dive into the evolving relationship between politics and the judiciary. Here's our episode from October 2018. Republicans in the Senate have been rushing to jam this nomination through before the midterm elections. One thing is clear. Democrats want to block Kavanaugh and hold the seat open until the 2020 election. This is about politics and this is about power, pure and simple. The confirmation process of Judge Brett Kavanaugh has been tumultuous, wrought with partisan division, wrenching testimony, and calls for FBI investigations. The United States Supreme Court is meant to be an apolitical institution, which relies on that impartiality in order to interpret our country's constitution. It relies on that impartiality to best fulfill its role as an independent branch in our system designed to offer checks on the legislative and executive branches. So what happens when Supreme Court nominations devolve into partisan battles and confirmation votes fall strictly along party lines? Is this the way our government and our judiciary should work? Is this the way it's always worked, or are we looking at something new? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Judge Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation process in the Senate is likely coming to a close this weekend. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has called a procedural vote for Friday, which means a final vote is likely on the Senate floor Saturday. And while this process may end soon, the conversations about our court that have risen over the past few weeks are ongoing. Because here's the thing. Right from the get-go, Kavanaugh's nomination was going to be contentious and political. The problem with this nomination always was not so much Brett Kavanaugh, but the justice that he was replacing, Anthony Kennedy. That's the Washington Post Supreme Court reporter Robert Barnes explaining the seat on the court that Kavanaugh's nomination is meant to fill. Robert has spent more than a decade reporting on the highest court in the land. Kennedy is the pivotal justice on the court. He is the one that uh, every lawyer pitches his case to because, you know, he votes most of the time with conservatives, but he joins with the liberals on some very important cases. And so whoever replaced Kennedy was always going to be a big battle. 
And it has been a battle. At first, a battle among senators trying to vet Kavanaugh's qualifications. But then a much more heated battle as Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and others raised allegations of sexual misconduct against Kavanaugh. I think if these allegations had not come out, I think there, it was more likely that some Democrats would vote for him than it is likely that Republicans would vote against him. It's almost as if the nominees now have to come up with a very good reason for uh, senators of the other party to vote yes instead of finding a good reason to vote no. And so that's what you see over and over again. You see almost a, a starting position in which the senators of the other party are not going to vote for the person unless they can be convinced to. So part of that convincing we've seen play out over the past few weeks, that has all culminated in an FBI investigation that was given to senators on Thursday morning. How is that being read in the Senate? Well, very carefully, you know, it's such a process that there's only one copy. They have to sort of line up and go in without any phone or any note-taking just to read it. It's a very unusual kind of thing that's happening. You know, usually these FBI background checks are fairly closely held, but, you know, nothing uh, like we're seeing now. In terms of what's in the report, we're hearing Republicans saying that the investigation found no corroboration of the allegations brought by Dr. Ford. And the Democrats have suggested that the White House, in fact, limited the probe to protect Kavanaugh. What are the next steps from here? Well, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has already started the process that would lead to a vote. There'll be debate the way it is set up now. There would be a vote on Saturday. But anything can happen as we've seen. It looked like that this was a nomination that was sort of sailing through on a partisan vote, but one that didn't seem terribly controversial until these charges came out. You know, one thing we should point out is another thing that makes this different is the nomination of Gorsuch and now of Kavanaugh are the first to take place under the Senate rules in which a simple majority is all that's needed. You know, there is no filibuster for a Supreme Court nominee anymore. So in the past, where you had to get 60 votes to proceed, whether or not that's what the actual vote on the on the nominee was, it meant that you had nominees that maybe were a little more in the middle, a little more acceptable to a broader range of the Senate. When it's only a majority needed, then that means that uh, the president and nominating the person and the Senate and looking at the person, they don't have to reach across the aisle as long as they can all stay together. Is it possible for Congress to undo that provision that allows only a majority, simple majority? It is possible, but who's going to want to do it now? I mean, uh, the Democrats have talked about undoing it, and they've got an immediate backlash from their supporters saying, are you crazy? Why, why would you disarm after Republicans have used it to get through two of their nominees. And so that's kind of the problem with the way these have proceeded and the way this process has evolved. I mean, now it would seem almost unlikely that 
a president could get a nominee through unless his party also controlled the Senate. Now, this is something that Chief Justice John Roberts has lamented over and over again. Roberts's confirmation was not particularly tough, although you might remember that a senator named Barack Obama voted against him uh, and Sam Alito, who were the two nominated by President George W. Bush. But, you know, he has said that there's nothing really changing about the qualifications of the nominees that are being put forward, but that the confirmation process itself is changing into becoming a much more partisan, almost war. So is the confirmation process actually changing, or has it always been this way? What does the history of judicial nominations look like, and just how political are the roots of this process? The tradition of Congress rejecting presidential nominees is as American as apple pie. I turned to Sanford Levinson, an American legal scholar and a law professor at the University of Texas, to lay out the origins of the Supreme Court. He says that, at least to some extent, judicial nominations have always been mired in politics. I think that from very early on, no later than 1800 or 1801, when John Adams, in literally the last several weeks of his administration, when he had been beaten in the Electoral College by Thomas Jefferson, engaged in appointment of so-called midnight judges, including John Marshall as the new chief justice, everybody knew that Marshall was being placed on the court in order to do what he could to stifle what Federalists thought would be Jeffersonian excesses. So the idea of a truly apolitical court has been honored as much in the breach as in the observance, because every savvy president, whether it is Adams or Jefferson or certainly Andrew Jackson, Lincoln, you know, I could march through the people who are thought to be our leading presidents. All of them, without exception, wanted to make sure as much as they could that they had friendly Supreme Courts. So is SCOTUS designed as an independent judiciary then? Would you say its goal to be apolitical was clearly apparent from the beginning, or has it always been influenced by politics? There were lots of debates in Philadelphia as to the best way for judges to get to the court. Some said that Congress should name them. Uh, Some people said presidents should name them. They finally uh, said, well, presidents with the advice and consent of the Senate. But this was all brand new. The judges that existed in 1775 were all named by the king. And so, as is often the case, they made it up as they went along. And by and large, the confirmations were, you know, easy and unexceptionable. But then, every now and then, Not surprisingly, the rejections are correlated with who controls the Senate. 
um, the if the Senate is controlled by the opposite party. And, you know, the framers were under the complete and utter delusion that somehow or other we wouldn't turn into a partisan political party-based system. I think that, yes, the court was designed as part of the so-called check and balance system. But once you give the president the power to name the judges, and if the Senate is part of the president's own party, and if we live in a political culture that we do, then it's not gonna be surprising that courts, by and large, don't serve as a particularly meaningful check on presidential power. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. At many moments in time, including this one, people have suggested potential ways to reshape the court. Have you heard proposals for restructuring the court? Oh, yeah. I've been in print now for well over a decade saying that life tenure is a really terrible idea and that we ought to have single 18-year terms, non-renewable, so that every president would be guaranteed two appointments per term, but no president could, in fact, appoint a majority of the court. A single political party would have to win three consecutive elections, which is actually quite unusual, and control the Senate throughout that entire time in order to be able to, you know, to get control of the Supreme Court. There are other interesting proposals, you know, kind of zany proposals, but nonetheless interesting, that the Supreme Court be expanded in effect to include a number of judges who are currently on federal circuit courts or who are chief justices of state Supreme Courts chosen at random so that you would have a pool of, let's say, 75 judges who would be available to decide cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, and but you would no longer have the same nine judges year after year after year. You know, I have seen that proposed. I don't think it's really the subject of any genuine live discussion today, unlike term limits. Why is it that legal opinions tend to fall along ideological lines at all? Can you explain the interaction of ideology and interpretation of the law? The decisions that get to the Supreme Court or the issues that get the Supreme Court, by definition, are going to be the toughest ones to resolve. So the ones they take are going to be the more complex issues, really hot-button issues, 
guns, affirmative action, abortion, certain questions involving state power and the like, death penalty, that people really care very deeply about. And these are processed in terms of the high politics of the judges. That is to say, ideas in the back of their head as to what's good for the country. I think that honest judges can do a reasonable job of separating their low political preferences from what the law requires or what the thought what the law is thought to require. When you get to high politics, what we're really talking about, as I say, is what you think is best for the country. You want happy endings. Why in the world would you interpret the Constitution to make us a less admirable country than you think we could be? And so I think all of us engage in so-called motivated reasoning when we're presented with a combination of genuinely ambiguous or indeterminate texts. Right. Now, many modern political candidates run on the idea that they'll appoint conservative or liberal justices according to their party. How does that shape the court or at least Americans' perception of it? Well, I think in 2016, it was very important that um, I think Donald Trump won. I mean, there are lots of reasons assigned to it. Um, um, But one of the reasons he won is that evangelical Christians in particular believed him when he said he would appoint judges they'd like. It was a brilliant political decision on his part during the campaign to say, I have this list of judges prepared by the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. They're all reliable conservatives, and I promise you right now that I'm going to appoint from that list. And he kept his promise. And so one can imagine a Democratic candidate saying, you know, when I look around for a judge, these are the specific people I'm going to draw from. One can also imagine that by 2020, there's going to be a real backlash. You know what's not smart? The way hiring used to be. Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. Now there's a smarter way at ZipRecruiter.com slash do that. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash do that. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-O-T-H-A. For now, in the lead up to the 2018 election, Republicans seem to believe that the Kavanaugh fight is energizing their voters. Since last week's hearings, some polls have suggested as much. 
A poll from NPR, PBS NewsHour, and Marist found that the percentage of Republicans saying that the midterm election is very important increased by 12 points. That same poll showed that Republicans are overwhelmingly more likely to support a candidate who backed Kavanaugh's nomination. A recent Gallup poll showed enthusiasm for voting in the midterms among Republicans approaching that of Democrats. And so I asked Robert whether it's striking to see the Supreme Court play such a major role in our elections. It is. But, you know, President Trump used the Supreme Court very skillfully during his campaign. I mean, he made the court a big deal. The court and judicial nominations in general have always been more important to Republican voters than they have to Democratic voters. Why might that be? I'm not sure. And I don't think political scientists know, except that I think that Republicans uh, felt that the court's were maybe moving too far, advancing changes in society that they didn't want to see. It's never been the kind of voting issue on one side that it was on the other side. Now, you know, the other night at his rally, he talked about Kavanaugh and we had the rally sort of erupted in this chant, we want Kavanaugh. I can't imagine we've ever had something like that happen before where, you know, at a political rally, there was a chant, you know, in favor of a Supreme Court nominee. I mean, this this does feel like uncharted territory. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. So then how does an actual 5-4 makeup on the court that we're likely to see soon, how does it affect Trump's agenda? Well, I mean, that's a hard question to answer. I think what we know is that this will be a court with five justices nominated by Republican presidents, that this will be one of the most conservative courts we've had in a very long time. And the problem for the Supreme Court, which likes to always present itself as the non-political branch of government, the non-partisan branch of government, is that we'll now have five justices on the conservative side who were nominated by Republicans and four liberal justices, all appointed, nominated by Democratic presidents. And so it's not too far of a stretch for the public to think, you know, the Republican justices are going one way and the Democratic justices are going the other way. The court hates that characterization of its work. And it likes to point out how many times that doesn't happen, that the 5-4 votes are just a small portion of what it does, uh, usually smaller than the number of unanimous decisions it has. But the fact is, those are the biggest issues, the ones that usually are decided 5-4, to four, the ones that get the most attention, and the ones that have the most impact on Americans. Does a partisan or seemingly partisan Supreme Court confirmation process, and as we just talked about, judicial appointments being discussed on the campaign trail, does all of that sort of chip away at public trust in the court? I think it does. Uh, And, you know, the Chief Justice John Roberts addressed this a couple of years ago, right before Justice Scalia died. He said that if the public is watching this process by which Republicans are on one side in favor of a nominee and Democrats are on the other side against the nominee, 
that it's only logical for the public to think the end of this process that either the Republicans won or the Democrats won, and that whoever that justice is is sort of put on the court with that kind of partisan victory. Yeah, one thing that often happens at this sh- on this show is we go through an exercise of examining the president's power and we get to a moment where we're sort of at an analytical dead end that is termed a constitutional crisis. So it's my understanding that in a lot of the cases where we would be faced with something like a hypothetical constitutional crisis, the Supreme Court might be the body that is has to weigh in on interpreting the Constitution on this particular matter. So how does the current state of all of the politics we've seen surrounding the Supreme Court and the president's relationship with Brett Kavanaugh, how does all of this contribute to how a decision about a constitutional crisis might be perceived and might be effective or ineffective should it come to that in our government? Well, again, that's that's going to come down to how much the public trusts the Supreme Court, right? And in some ways, I think we can tend to overdo this. Look at last term where for the longest time there was debate over President Trump's a travel ban. Finally, the Supreme Court on a five to four vote approved the travel ban, said that it was within the president's powers. And yet that decision was accepted. There was, of course, a lot of criticism of it. There's always criticism, but it wasn't like the legitimacy of it was questioned. And so that's what the Supreme Court has to work toward. You know, there's another interesting thing that there have been a couple of specific cases about the president himself, the Nixon tapes decision, for instance, or the decision that Bill Clinton had to give a deposition in the civil case brought against him by Paula Jones. And in both of those cases, which seemed as if they could have been very uh, divisive about the president's powers, the court was unanimous. Once unanimous against a Republican president who had appointed a number of the justices on the court, in the other unanimous against a Democratic president. And so I think if there is a specific case against Trump, for instance, can Mueller subpoena him in the in his investigation. It'll be interesting to see what the court does with that, because I think that would be a case where the court would try very hard not to split on that five to four ground. Is the pressure on the court right now and the pressure on our political system overall, is it putting our whole system of checks and balances at risk or... Are we sustaining this just fine? Well, I think we always worry about what's happening in front of us at the moment. And is that going to change everything? Usually it doesn't change everything. But, you know, you have to always see how these things play out. You know, it's always interesting to me after the Bush v. Gore decision by the Supreme Court, another one that's, you know, sort of split along conservative, liberal grounds, very divisive, a lot of hurt feelings, even on the court uh, with the sort of rushed way that happened. You would expect the public's opinion of the court to fall. Instead, it went up slightly because I don't know why, because, but maybe because the public saw at least a thoughtful process, uh, whether or not they agreed with the outcome or not. And so it seems to me that's the thing that we'll be looking for 
in the court. The court already has sort of a higher approval rating than the executive branch or the legislative branch. And so that's what they're trying to hang on to. Thanks for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? If you liked what you heard, tell three people and then go tell the internet and then come back next week and listen to another episode. Thanks again. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the flawless, perfect, extraordinary, quintessential, unequaled Carol Alderman. Uh, You guys can see who wrote this part of the script today. (laughs) With design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 